to another installment of the Everyday Life Bible Study Podcast. I'm Paul Church, your host, as we take a look at the life of Jesus as presented in the Gospels, a somewhat chronological um, study of the life of Christ. We're going back and forth a little bit, but um, taking a look at his interactions with people primarily. I've really been enjoying this. I hope you have too. If you have been enjoying it, I want to ask you to do me a huge favor that really does help out around here. If you could go to Apple Podcasts and give a review, a positive review, a five-star review, and leave some great comments there. Just take a minute or two to do that. If this has been a blessing to you, we'd certainly appreciate that. Thanks so much. Um, that's enough for the um, promotion part. Let's get in with the with the message today. We are going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 9. Today we're talking about attitude, uh, a Christ-like attitude, and um, some that not necessarily are Christ-like. Uh, priorities and commitments. Um, there's a few different attitudes that we're going to read about today, kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. One was too much, one was too little, and well, one is just right. And so um, we're going to be looking at James and John, um, some people that Jesus and his disciples met on the road, and then we're going to talk about Jesus. And I'm sure you can obviously infer that um, the just right attitude would be that of Jesus. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 9. Um, it's a long chapter, but we're not going to go through the whole thing. No, I'll spare you the reading of the entire long chapter. We're going to start in verse 51. Um, and we see here right off the bat that we're getting close to the end of Jesus's life. And so this study on Jesus actually has several more weeks to come. However, um, verse 51 starts with, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus res resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Um, the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Before I get too far into this, I want to um, kind of give you another little preview about what we're going to be talking about. Today is a day where there's so much division in our country, so much anger. Um, lines have been drawn and people are very um, determined in their belief about coronavirus, about masks, about you name it, about race even. And so, um, or uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and everything connected with that, we're actually going to be talking about the kinds of attitudes uh, that people have now when it comes to that. So I, th I think this this particular podcast, man, as I was going through it again, this is a podcast for our day and time that we're in right now. So I hope it's a blessing to you. I hope it offers some perspective. So, anyways, back to the podcast. Back to the to the the message today. Verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get some things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. See, it was in Samaria, and uh, you, you've heard it on this podcast. If you've listened to old episodes, if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard it there as well, that Jews who lived in Jerusalem and up in Galilee and, and Judea, and uh, they, uh, they were different from Samaritans who lived kind of in the middle between the two. Um, Samaria was um, 
Jews, Jews hated Samaritans because good Jewish blood was mixed with pagan blood, right? And then we have pagans actually also hated Samaritans because good pagan blood was mixed with Jewish blood. And so uh, they were a hated group of people here, and, and the feeling was very mutual. So race was a definite issue, and since Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, they did not welcome him. Verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? (laughs) But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I think it's funny. Jesus turned and rebuked them. So let's kind of talk about James and John for a moment here, right? Um, They wanted to call fire down. Now, Now listen, they had just been privileged to witness Jesus's transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, where he they went up there. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus. He was transfigured before them in his glorified type of a form, a heavenly form, and and he he talked with Moses and Elijah. And James and John saw all this. Um, probably made them feel pretty special. And so when they encountered Samaritan opposition, I'm kind of hearing this Robert De Niro, Godfatherish type of a thing. Um, are you, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Do you know who this guy is? Then he goes all Godfather on them, you know, say hello to my little friend, you know, <laughs> I'm going to call fire down on you. And Jesus steps in. Whoa, whoa, John, James, settle down now. And I actually like, um, I like to picture Jesus giving them the look. You know, men, you, you know what the look is. We all know what the look is. Women know what the look is too because they're really good at it, right? Um, sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll say all kinds of crazy things and I'll get the look um, from Vicky of, I wish you hadn't have said that, you know? I don't even have to be, I don't even have to see the look in order to know I'm getting the look, right, guys? Um, you just kind of feel it. You just kind of know it, and you realize, oh, maybe I should uh, head a different direction here. Uh, and maybe that's what I should do right now. I should move on. But um, it says that Jesus turned and rebuked them, and I picture him just giving them the look. Really, guys? James and John, oh, uh, got it. Note to self, fire from heaven to consume people, not a good thing. I mean, that's really not exactly what Jesus came to do to people, right? (laughs) James and John definitely had zeal. They were committed, just a little misguided here. Now, these guys were, were brothers, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. I mean, what an amazing nickname to have here, you know, you and your bro. And it's uh, and Jesus comes to you and he says, you're James and John. I'm going to call you the sons of thunder. I mean, that's cool, right? And so uh, uh, so I'm sure he understood their personalities ahead of time, though, to call them the sons of thunder. Uh, John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, not that Jesus didn't love others, but there was apparently a unique bond between the two of them. Now, um, this fire from heaven attitude, how does it show up today? You know, I've known some people who are very zealous for Jesus. Uh, I see preachers on Facebook who are very zealous for Jesus, but are really not demonstrating much of a love uh, for people, not necessarily the love of Jesus. And as a result, they're very godly. I mean, they're very zealous for godly ideas and principles. Yet, 
there's a wall of separation that are, that are being built between what you might call the godly and the worldly. And, uh, and, and, and this separation that we don't cross. And some people are very proud of that separation. Come out and be separate, you know, as, as it says in Corinthians. But that's not exactly what that verse means right there. But um, this wall of separation between the godly and the worldly. But we know that Jesus came to dismantle that. He came to intersect that separation. When he died, the veil of the curtain was torn in two, the, of the temple was torn in two. And it means that, look, there's no longer any separation separation. Their zeal is genuine enough, but it's not tempered by love. And they end up coming across as militant and contrary. And you know, it shows up in politics. It shows up when people start getting into a debate about coronavirus. I don't know when you're listening to this, but today is August 3rd, Monday, August 3rd. And this episode is going to go out sometime in the future here in the near future. And we are, man, we're supposed to have been so far removed from this coronavirus quarantine by now, but we find ourselves still in a time of restriction, and and the wearing of masks is a hotly debated topic, and, and should we go back to church or should we not go back to church, and all of these things, and people are angry, and they'll talk about church in such a way that, you know, you can't stop this and we have rights and this and that. And and they're zealous for the house of God, but it's not tempered by the love of God. It shows up in politics a lot. This is an election year. This is probably going to be the most hotly contended for presidential election in history. I, I don't even want to turn on my television because I just... I don't want to hear it. It's just the the anger and the vitriol and and the and the spewing of of negative ads and all that kind of stuff. Now, um, it's no secret or surprise that many biblical principles are you know there is there's a lot that would love to legislate it out of our culture, and no one particular party, Republican or Democrat, bears the entire blame for this. There's no greater separation between the church and the world than during an election season. Christians are as much to blame for that as anyone else. Now, as we read the New Testament, we notice some things. Not, not once do we read about Jesus confronting government policies or political leaders. He talked about it. Should we pay taxes? Well, whose, whose image is on the coin? Pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. You know, He didn't debate with the Roman authorities. But he did go after the religious leaders. When asked about Rome, he deferred his conversation to the kingdom of God. Politics are our thing, okay? That's our thing, not God's. God does not want anything, not even politics or not even coronavirus to come in the way, uh, to get in the way of people coming to him. But there are so many Christians who are angry and up in arms and genuine in their zeal for the Lord. They, I mean, they're really feeling, I don't doubt that whatsoever. But what I'm afraid of is what I see is a lot of zeal that's not tempered with love. Zeal for God without the love of God. And that's simply wrong. Are you with me? Maybe I'm hitting you right between the eyes. Maybe you just went on a Facebook rant not long ago, or maybe in a, in a conversation with somebody who didn't see the same way as you see it, and um, and maybe this is hitting you right between the eyes right now, or maybe you've been with me this whole time, and you're like, man, I hate what's going on right now. But the fact is, it is going on. 
you know, um, not I'm not choosing a side here when it comes to politics because I'm telling you, a relationship with God supersedes politics. For years and years, well, forever, it seems like, um, it seems that conservatives felt like they had the market on God. That when you get saved, that eventually you'll start voting Republican and watching Fox News, and that's just the way it is right there. And, um, but of course, you know, I'm in uh, Colorado, which is a lot more liberal than other parts of the country. And what I realized, realized was about half the church that I pastored, uh, was Democrat and half was Republican. We just didn't tell that to the Republicans because, (laughs) um, they just didn't think the Democrats belonged there and probably vice versa as well. And there are some issues that there were divisions about, and we don't need to get into that. Of course, we took stands on different subjects and said such as abortion. And as a church, we didn't believe that abortion, we don't, I still don't believe that abortion is something that God uh, is okay with. And as believers, I, I don't think that's something that he's okay with. Yet we always said, I always stated strongly that if you believe differently, you are still welcome to be one of our family members. We're not going to sit down here and just try to change your mind about everything to believe as we believe, because I believe that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, right? I believe that God is big enough. And some of you right now, you're saying, yes, but but what about, but this is killing babies and, and you have to stand up for that and you have to tell them that that's wrong and that it's ungodly and, 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 and all of these. I believe God is big enough And the Holy Spirit is strong enough to lead us into all truth. When we encounter people that don't see things the way we see them, we get angry, don't we? And Jesus encountered people who saw things differently all the time. How did he respond? How did he respond to the centurion whose whose servant was sick? He healed him. He loved him. You know, um, I hear conservatives say a lot that, and I am, I'm punching conservatives in the face right now. I realize that. Okay. (laughs) Don't judge, don't, don't, you, you won't be able to, to to pick out my political persuasion, I promise. But um, I hear conservatives saying all the time how, man, just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean that I hate you. And, and can't we, can't we, um, agree to disagree and things like that? Can't we see things differently and still without the hate and stuff? Because it seems like, you know, because they say, it seems like, man, the liberals, that if I don't agree with you, if if I don't support um, LGBTQ+, plus, then that means that I hate them. And that's just not true and stuff. But yet, and, and I get that. And I, I, I think that is absolutely true. But yet we do the same things. On our pet projects, on our pet topics, you know, such as wearing of masks or political sides or various things like that, immigration, even whatever, you name it. If you don't see things the way I see them, then, you know, we just can't be friends. And so both sides are equally guilty of both things. And when it comes to the life of a believer, all right, a believer, we can have zeal, we can have opinions about something, but if those opinions are not tempered by the love of God, then we're not shining a light for Jesus. We're not, we're not being Christ 
to the world. We're just trying to impose and shove our principles down people's throats. It's like James and John wanting to call fire down from heaven upon them because they didn't welcome them, because they didn't like where Jesus and his disciples were going. And so Jesus gave him the look. Really, guys? Is that what I'm here to do? I'm here to love people. I'm here, I'm, I'm here to, to seek and to save that which is lost, you know? So does this apply to us today? Absolutely. Does this apply to most of us listening? Absolutely. Does it apply to me? <laughs> Man, I've, I've, I've gone on my own rants as well. But, uh, but I've stopped doing Facebook rants and social media rants. Uh, I've, I haven't done that for quite some time. Because what I've seen is, man, it just builds a wall. There are people on uh, who I'm friends with that, uh, man, I would love it if they came to a knowledge of Christ and began to follow him. But I know that if I throw up my political view, that if I throw up my thoughts about coronavirus or this or that, that it's just going to throw up a wall of separation that doesn't need to be there. The only thing separating us between uh, separating us from God is our sin. Politics does not separate us. Coronavirus, the wearing of a mask does not separate us. You name it, nothing else that we can think of can separate us. Matter of fact, the Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Um, the heights or the depths or, or principalities, power, nothing can, much less our opinion about a specific temporal issue. Have I, have I gone down uh, that road um, enough? Okay, can I move on? Let's move on here to example number two. So there's James and John, there's zeal without love. An example of how not to be. So let's keep going. Example number two, we're gonna start in Luke 9, verse 57. Just keep on with the very next verse. We're gonna go through 62 here. Um, verse 57, as they were walking along the road, because they couldn't stop there, so they just kept going to Jerusalem. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. Whoa, that's the same invitation he gave to Peter, to Matthew, to you name all of his 12 disciples, right? He came, so one guy came to him and said, I'll follow you. And, um, and then this other guy comes up and says, and Jesus says, hey, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Then Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So we have, uh, we have a trio of people here, three people who are, who are specifically mentioned as encounters that Jesus had on the road to Jerusalem. When he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, I'm going to get there, determination. He's walking along. And for some reason, Luke here mentions these three individuals that they met along the road. And I think there's got to be a reason. I think we can take a look at their attitudes. I think this is this comes from James and John and their attitudes. And then these guys kind of have another attitude presented when it comes to following Jesus. These are examples of people who wanted to follow him, 
but it just didn't take the primary place in their lives. And so, whereas James and John, they had the zeal, these people don't necessarily have that, but they might be feeling the love. You know what I mean? I mean, they weren't trying to call fire on others, (laughs) but I think their attitude may be much harder to deal with. While James and John had misguided zeal, these people displayed the exact opposite. It was apathy. Apathy would be like a, a lack of interest or concern. Now, there are those who are politically zealous, and there are those who are politically apathetic. And you might say, well, neither one is the best way. But uh, And it's same with following Jesus. The first guy said, look, I'll follow you wherever we go. Then Jesus said he'd have to give up his house. Foxes have holes, have holes, dens, and birds have whatever, and nests, whatever. Uh, but the Son of Man, he says, I don't have any place to lay my head. Oh, I, I didn't realize it was going to cost me so much. There's no record of this guy continuing with Jesus. The text, I think, implies that he walked away. We make the same kind, the same commitment to him, right? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever I, where, wherever you lead, and we'll follow that up with. But I know that he would never ask me to give up all this, you know. Uh, besides, it's it's all God's blessings, right? He gave all this stuff to me. And the only reason we think that way is probably because on, on the inside, we're unwilling to give it up for him. But he asks this of people all the time. I mean, they're called missionaries, right? He asks many of them to give up their homes and live in sub-American standards in foreign countries and leave their families thousands of miles away. He asks me to give up a very wealthy career path. He asks others to give up salaries and comfortable living to go to urban centers and rescue young girls from human trafficking. It's not easy. It's sometimes very dangerous work. I mean, where do we get this idea that God won't ask you to give stuff up for him, right? Not from, the, not from the Bible. I think that came straight from our culture of this American dream ideology. Look, the American dream, it's a good thing, right? People have come from all over the world for their slice of the pie, but it's not a biblical idea. Not at all. So then there's the next guy. He received the same kind of call as the 12, right? I already mentioned that, that Jesus walked up, and up to him and said, follow me. But he also had a life he wasn't really willing to leave or not yet willing to leave. He says, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, understand, this does not mean that his father was dead. Uh, His father was not, had not just died. He's like, well, we're kind of got funeral arrangements happening. You know, can I take care of this first? It wasn't like that. What was happening is, is, is this. He wanted to stay in his father's house, stay with his family until his father died. Otherwise, he would miss out on his father's inheritance. If he left, he could do as the prodigal son say, only son did, you know, and say, give me my share of the, of the estate and I'll leave now. Uh, he could have done that. Uh, obviously, he wouldn't have been a prodigal. He'd have been actually following Jesus, you know. But uh, but leaving before his father died would have meant, look, giving up so much of that, and he had way too much to lose. Jesus' reply seems a little cold, but only if you don't understand the context. Basically, he was saying, let the spiritually dead bury the dead, bury the physically dead. I've, I've called you to proclaim my message. I, I, I went to you and I said, follow me. There's something inside of you and I see it and, I, and I, I want that. There's so much there. I want you to be one of my inner circle, one of my 
disciples here. And there's so much that this guy had to offer that Jesus saw, but he felt like he had too much to lose. And so he said, let, my, let, let me first bury my father. Then I promise, then I'll come after I've gotten what's coming to me. And Jesus said, you know, the spiritually dead can bury the spiritually dead. Spiritually dead can bury the physically dead. I've called you to proclaim my message. Then there's a third guy. I'll follow you. Just let me say goodbye to my family, okay? Uh, Not an unreasonable request. Uh, However, this does stand in contrast to the original 12 who immediately got up and left everything and followed Jesus. Then Jesus replied, he says, look, if you're going to be my disciple, you can't look back. Now, there's nothing wrong with a loving goodbye, but I think it can get in the way for, for of obedience. Maybe for this guy, the hesitation would have turned into disobedience, more time to think about it and talk himself out of it. Going back to experience all the comforts of home would cause him to long for it and to desire to keep that and not give it up. I mean, it's not permission to dishonor family, but it's a call to do something for God. And then Jesus gives the example of plowing. Now, he says, those who have put their hands to the plow... Let me read it specifically here. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Um, Plows in those days, in my understanding uh, and my research, had one handle, and the other handle held the goad to spur the oxen on, right? The plow was lightweight, and it required the plowman to stand on it, leaning forward with with all of his weight to keep the blade in the ground, keep the share, the plow share, in the ground. And to, to do straight rows, you have to keep your attention forward to do it right. Uh, I think any farmer, even today driving a combine, um, excuse me, even today driving a combine, uh, you have to fix your eyes on something uh, and, and go straight toward it. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're liable to have a crooked um, furrow here. Looking back would result in crooked furrows. You keep doing that kind of thing, you're going to find yourself out of a job. If we keep looking back at our old life with longing and homesickness, look, we're unfit for service in his kingdom. Our life will be out of whack and crooked, like the Israelites kept looking back at Egypt with longing. God kept them wandering in the desert until those people died off. The problem with all those, all, the, all these people is that they were generally apathetic. All these three guys, they were generally apathetic to the things of God. They knew following Jesus was a good thing. They'd heard about him. Maybe they'd seen him perform a miracle. Maybe they were recipients. They heard his teaching. And they knew this is a good guy. This could be the Messiah here. But their lives were full of other things that got in the way. And man, churches are full of these people today. Following Jesus is a good thing. You know, and we go to church, we own a few Bibles, have Christian art on our walls, right? Listen to Christian radio in the car. But when it comes down to it, there's a line. There's a line we're not willing to cross. Maybe it's too busy to serve in the church, or maybe my job is too essential for me to really live my faith. Or, well, you see, the rest of my family doesn't really want to come to church. You understand, right? My kids are involved in a lot of sports, or there's football on TV, you know? Life is full of things we think are so important. I have these things I love, and oh yeah, I would give them up in a heartbeat, right? But God would never ask me to do that. How do you know? that he wouldn't ask you to do that. Jesus told one guy, look, I know where your heart is. Your heart is in your possessions. So here, if you want to follow me, here's the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, give the money to the poor, then come follow me. 
You don't think you'd ask it for us today? Is it, I mean, are, are we so apathetic to the things of God as well? I mean, it's not really a primary commitment in life. Jesus, sorry, I don't know if you hear my dog barking. He barks at air as it blows out the front door, you know, as it blows around outside. <laughs> so uh, whatever, that's Bruno. But Jesus sets a standard here that if you're going to be his disciple, then he must take the prominent place in your life. Everything else hangs from that, not the other way around. Finally, there's Jesus. What is his attitude like? And this can literally be called the actual Christ-like attitude. I believe it's what he wants from all of us. Okay, before any of this happened, before James and John wanted to kill people with fire, and before these apathetic guys met him on the road, verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, here's Jesus' attitude. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely. Marked by firm determination, purposeful, determined, unwavering. Jesus was determined to get to Jerusalem for the last time. I I think he knew full well that he wasn't getting out of there alive this time. So why in the world would he be so bent on going? I mean, God wouldn't actually ask you to give up your life for him, right? I mean, those Bible references, they're, they're, they're figurative, right? You see, this level of commitment is foreign to us but not in other parts of the world. Today, in some countries, Christians risk their lives just to meet together. They have been disowned by their families. They're in danger of of death. They've been publicly humiliated. Many have been killed because they believe in Jesus so much that they actually live what they believe. Kind of like in Revelation where it says they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Jesus was resolute to fulfill his purpose. He was on a mission Our problem is, I think, we love our lives too much. And I don't mean to be negative toward everybody here, and I'm not talking about you specifically. It's kind of a general general idea here. Revelation says they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death, and sometimes I think we love our lives a whole lot. And it is true. This life is a blessing from God. But when he gives us a crown, I mean, we can't respond by wearing it and keeping it at all costs. No, our response is to take it off and lay it down before him. That's the Christ-like attitude that God's looking for, where we say, you know what? My life's not my own. Everything I have, you did give to me. So everything belongs to you. And Lord, I I lay it down. I lay down my very life before you. Lord, I want to live my life on mission. I want to live my life on purpose. I want you to take the primary place, you and your purpose for me, to take the primary place in my life. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him? Do you feel sometimes that, man, I just lack strength or my, my, my Christian experiences lack luster, you know? Uh, I feel so apathetic or I just feel angry about this or something and I just can't find that center. But it says, look, the, the eyes of the Lord, Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When, when the, those who, who have him at the primary place in their lives, in their purpose, in how they live. This requires self-evaluation. What's my commitment to God really look like? And it requires us to make a decision. 
you got to first start, identify it. What's going on with me? Am I like James and John? Am I just, am I just overzealous without love? What's my commitment to God really look like? Am I, do, I, do I think it's a great thing to follow Jesus, but man, I'm just, I don't want to give up things though, you know? Or it's like, Lord, you take the primary place in my life. It requires us to make a decision. Well, I hope I've given you some things to think about today, something to take beyond just this short amount of time that we have together. Take this to the Lord in prayer. God, what does my commitment to you look like? And Lord, what do I want it to look like? I want to be, I want you to have primary place in my life. And you know what? He'll take that. He's going to strengthen you, fill you with his peace, his joy, his comfort. God bless you. My everyday prayer is that the Bible would come alive in your everyday life. Thanks for listening. God bless you.